0: Hello everybody, good evening, good day everyone, I hope you're all doing very well, and uh, thank you for being on the 143rd episode of the Ask Abhijit show. I hope the image is good, (laughs) so here we are. Uh, So before we begin, as always, let me see who all is there with us. I can see Chiching, Karthik, Ayan, Vitamin Protein, Kishan, Kushal, Sushil, Avneed, Rajiv, Nikhil, Sidhan Singh, Chauhan, Bharat, Paksha. Nandan Durga, good evening, PK, Kostob, Jeet, Krutart, Jeet, Jenil, Clipper Flipper, Vladimir Adityanath, Ankushnath, YK, Mr. Giga Chad of India, Chiang's World, Yash Bharadwaj 059, Eternal Light, Shiva Prasad, Nikhil, Nero, Saddam Hussein is, is here with us, Avnit Singh Khurana, Aditya again, Mona Lisa, Anthony Mack, Bharat Paksh, the cult God, Roshan Riker, Angshuman, PK, Anudip, Vaibhav, Mr. Nobody, Sushil, Vishant, Pratyush, Sachit, Dude, Sayan, Laghe Raho, Online, Kishan, Jeet, Roy Chaudhary, Samudra Das, Dungar Singh, Chauhan, Nikhil Kumar, jay Chatralia, Ch- Akshay, Aryan, Sahil, XP, Abhay, Nish, Dilip, Devjit, Haripriya, Vaibhav, Sampati, And lots of other people, good man, Manmat, Tiwari, Captain X, Jeet, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Thank you so much for being on the show. So today we will uh, take... Obviously, I will take questions from the comments that you have uh, that you have posted in the comments. I hope the image is fine. Yesterday, I apologize for yesterday. There were some technical issues. There was some lag and all that. Today, I have a whole different setup. I have a different service, uh, internet service provider, different broadband, different laptop, new laptop, and all. So hopefully, things are better. Uh, Things will go better today. I hope the image is clear. I've tried to replicate the same image as as I had before. So, uh, so I hope everything goes fine today. Right. So with that said, let us get into the questions. What questions do we have today? Um, okay, let's take the first one by Amit. Amit says, very C-grade performance, very, very C-grade performance by the Russian army. They were gaining ground, attacking, but only by destroying cities by, and so on and so forth. So it's about Kharkiv, it's about Kherson. Uh, so the the... Overall, sentiment is that the Russians are losing, it's uh, they're doing very poorly, and uh, that's what many people uh, seem to be uh, thinking. And there is, I mean, it makes sense to think that way because the Russians withdrew from Kharkiv, the Russians withdrew from Kherson. So, what's happening? So, let us revisit this one more time. Let's take a look at the map. So, somebody was very kind enough to send me a good map of Ukraine on, on Twitter. I usually use an interactive map but let's take a look at this map i don't know who the person is but thank you very much sir or or ma'am for sending this map this is a very good color-coded map and it it will uh, help us understand the thing better the situation better so uh this is an older map you can see that uh the crimean republic is shown as part of ukraine it is no longer part of ukraine it was annexed by the russians in 2014. the four crimean oblasts or republic the the four Ukrainian oblasts or republics that have been annexed by R- Russia are Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk. Right, the the four southeastern ones. Now uh, the situation is that the Russians a uh, few months ago withdrew from Kharkiv. Right, Kharkiv is the city over here in the north. They withdrew from it. They withdrew from Kharkiv, and recently. Just a few days ago, they uh, withdrew from north of the Dniper River in the Kherson Oblast. So they evacuated Kherson City for several months before this happened, for several weeks before this happened. And then they uh, withdrew from uh, the right bank of the Dniper River, which is the north northwest of the Kherson province. That is what happened. Right. Uh, so... What they did before they they withdrew is they evacuated all the Russian-speaking people from that region. See, the Kherson region is Russian majority. And that's why the Russians have annexed it. But they evacuated all the Russian ethnicity people, the Russian-speaking people from that region for several weeks. And only then they withdrew from the region because they knew what the Ukrainians would otherwise do to the Russian speakers. Because we know what they've been doing to, to the Russian speakers since 2014. So the Russians did this first and then they withdrew from that part of Kherson province. And I had said when the news first came in that there are three possibilities, three possibilities of what's really happening. The first possibility is that NATO is winning. This is a proxy war between Russia and NATO. Ukraine is the proxy. So the, the first possibility is that NATO is winning and Russia is losing. That's why they were thrown out of Kharkiv and they were forced to evacuate from that part of Kherson, right? Right. So, if that is true, if this possibility is the correct possibility, if this is the right thing, then you will see that the Ukrainians will try to cross the river and try to move into the other part, the Russian-occupied part of Kherson province, which is south of the river Dniper, and they may even try to make a move on Crimea. So, if NATO is winning, if the Russians have been thrown out, then this is what's going to happen. But it's not happened thus far. So... What's the second possibility? The second possibility I said is that there are negotiations going on secretly for a ceasefire and the Russian withdrawal from this part of Kherson is maybe a prerequisite for the ceasefire and maybe something will uh, happen during the G20 summit or right after the G20 summit, immediately after it. Well, the G20 summit came and went this week and nothing was announced. And nothing, uh, there's been no move uh, in that direction either. And the third possibility, I said, is that the Russians are laying a nasty trap for NATO. So they will withdraw from this region, let the uh, Ukrainian uh, forces, NATO forces come into the Kherson city, and then they will obliterate it. Well, even that has not happened. The Ukrainians are not stupid. They also sense that there could be this sort of nasty surprise waiting for them. So they have not moved into Kherson city in big, big numbers. Yes, they have taken the city, of course, and so on. They have so-called liberated the city, and, and that's what's happening. So I had put forth three possibilities. NATO winning is one, second is ceasefire negotiations happening in secret. And third, nasty trap for NATO. Well, thus far, we have seen nothing happening. Neither possibility A, nor possibility B, nor possibility C. So what is happening? What is happening? And, you know, I am sure there is a lot of anger in Russia as well about... First of all, the withdrawal from Kharkiv. And secondly, then this, this new withdrawal from north of the Dniper River in the Kherson region. I am sure there is a great deal of anger and resentment among the Russian population. And in in Russia, when, when you have a de facto dictator who's ruling the country, this sort of resentment is very dangerous. It is very dangerous. It can lead to the downfall if of the leader, Mr. Putin, if he becomes deeply unpopular. If he is seen to have failed, and yet he willingly withdrew his forces from Kharkiv, and he willingly withdrew his forces from Kherson. So what's happening? What's happening? There is a fourth possibility. I believe that the Russians are waiting for winter. It's still not winter. If you look at the, if you Google the the weather in Kiev right now, you will see it's it's zero degrees or minus uh, minus one, minus two thereabouts. Yep. So it's it's late autumn. It's already becoming really cold. It's already uh, touching the zero degrees mark and going into the minus degree uh, negative temperatures. Yes, but it's not winter yet. When is winter really there? Winter is really there in full force. When the ground freezes, when the ground freezes, when the rivers freeze over, the rivers don't necessarily have to freeze over, but the ground needs to freeze. All the muddy, boggy patches of ground all over Ukraine. Ukraine is extremely flat. It's flat like a pancake. There are no hills. There are no mountains. It's flat, flat, flat. And there are places where you have mud. There are places you have bog and all that. All that, in winter, it freezes. It becomes solid. I believe the Russians are waiting for that to happen. And right now what they are doing is they have pulled out their forces from Kharkov, Kharkiv, from Kherson. They are reconfiguring their forces. They, they have also recruited more people and all that. And they are waiting for the ground to freeze. They are waiting for General Winter to make his arrival into Novorossiya, into Ukraine. And I believe once that happens, there will be a major push forward military push forward the russian the russian people will not tolerate any perceived loss by the russian armed forces right so it is a significant possibility in my opinion that the russians are merely waiting they they are they are withdraw this is a tactical withdrawal they are waiting for the ground to freeze and then there will be a major push forward so by mid december perhaps you could see a major upsurge in military activity and major push forward by the Russian forces. They have, until now, withheld significant portions of their military. The, arm, the, the Air Force has hardly been involved at all. It is being kept in reserve for the future big war. And there's a whole lot more to come. So I think there is a possibility, number four, that in within a month's time, maybe in two weeks, three weeks, whenever the ground freezes, the Russians will... Push forward, big push forward, you know, massive push forward, and that could essentially change the map of Ukraine forever. And NATO knows that, because how do? Why do I say NATO knows that? I say this because, let me put something on the screen. Because of this, this is from the Washington Post. It's from November five. Today is November twenty. That's like two weeks ago. The U.S. privately asks Ukraine to show it's open to negotiate with Russia. Yeah. So over here, it's, it's being said that the encouragement is not aimed at pushing Ukraine to the negotiating table, but ensuring it maintains a moral ho- high ground in the eyes of international backers and so on. But the Americans are asking Ukraine to privately to show that it's open to negotiate. Maybe there are negotiations that are happening. We don't know. Maybe there are. These things are not announced until it's a fait accompli. Yeah? So I think there is a significant possibility that the Russian withdrawal from Kharkiv from Kherson, etc. It's a tactical withdrawal. It's like a chess move in which you you know, you know, pull back for a while. Uh, maybe sometimes you may even sacrifice a pawn or a chess piece here and there. And then you do what you are really uh, planning to do. So I think, I may be wrong, of course, but I think in two to three weeks, maybe by, by mid-December when the ground is totally frozen, you will see a major offensive that will change the whole dynamic of the war. Major Russian offensive. So let's see, I'm putting this out in the open. Let's see if I'm right. Let's see if I'm wrong. Time will tell us. By mid-December, I think this could happen. Or maybe by the latest, by the end of December. I don't think the Russians will wait. Once the ground is properly frozen, I don't think they'll wait. They're going to push. So let's see if, this is, the, if this, is the, this is the case. And they have the ability to overrun parts uh, significant portions of Ukraine in very less time. Especially if the uh, Air Force gets involved. In that case, they can... Annihilate the resistance from from the NATO NATO backed Ukrainian proxy forces. So uh, that is what could be in the offing. That that's what could come very soon. Let's wait and watch, and let's see if I'm right or if I will be proven wrong. All right. Okay. Next question. Harsh Agarwal says, Do you think Trump will come back as president of the US? I'm assuming, and can India and Indians really trust? Donald Trump. I heard in an interview with a foreign U.S. national security advisor that if the Chinese give him assurance on votes, he will side with the Chinese. What's my take? I don't think Donald Trump is a traitor to his country. Siding with the Chinese means betraying your own nation. I don't think Donald Trump is that sort of a person. Obviously, he has business dealings worldwide, including with China. What's wrong with that? I am sure the other side also has plenty of people, including at very high high positions, who have all kinds of dealings with China. I think we know about that. I'm not going to speak about it, but I think you all know what I mean. So, uh, it's perfectly fine to have legal, legitimate business dealings with nations like China, with with Russia, with India, with whoever else you want. What's wrong with that? But I do not think that Donald Trump will betray his nation in in exchange for an assurance of votes. When so I don't know, I don't know what interview you're talking about. I'm not, I'm not sure which NSA you're referring to, but if somebody is. Is, is saying that Donald Trump will side with, with China if the Chinese give him assistance with votes. You are essentially saying that the Chinese are capable of, of interfering with the electoral process of the US. Until now, they've been saying Russia, Russia, Russia. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying that it, the, you are essentially alleging that Donald Trump will betray his country in exchange for, for Chinese interference in election, elections. I think there is incredibly stupid if somebody has actually said that i personally have not heard the, heard about it so that's point number one i don't think donald trump will betray his nation and side with china in exchange for chinese interference in the election uh electoral uh, process of the u.s okay so that's, that's number one uh do i think donald trump will come back in 2024 time will tell us i think it's unlikely I know it's it's not a popular thing to say. Uh, lots of Indians are, are big fans of Mr. Trump. I think it's unlikely that Donald Trump will come back. Why do I say this? Because he is an outsider in US politics. He came in as an outsider and, and managed to secure the Republican nomination for presidency in 2016. It was a shock to the Republican Party all those all the all the seasoned politicians they all sound the same they don't say they talk a lot without saying anything donald trump came in and grabbed the entire process by the throat and he was very popular with uh, the republicans with the with the population the, vo- the the voters and that's how he was able to win the republican nomination and then he was able to defeat uh, who was it hillary hillary clinton right so he's an outsider There are people within his own party who don't like the fact that this businessman, this business tycoon came in and and, uh, shoved them all aside and became so popular. There are plenty of, he has plenty of opponents within his own party. And secondly, the overall electoral system in the US, whether it's Republicans or whether it's Democrats, they they both hate him. It's a bipartisan uh, dislike of Donald Trump. They don't want this sort of thing to ever happen again. That an outsider, a non-politician manages to enter politics and wins, it's it's bad for business. Politics is deeply, deeply linked to business and money. Yeah, it's it's bad for business if if uh, if a non politician becomes president. So I, th- uh, D- Donald Trump, we know he has already announced his candidacy for the twenty twenty four Republican nomination for presidency. Yeah, and he has challenges like Ron DeSantis and various other people. You know, some new names may may come up in the in the future, in the coming months. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's going to be a significant uh, amount of resistance from within his party, and even if he manages to secure once again the Republican nomination, there could be. I mean, the Democrats will, will try to make life hell for him. Yeah, of course, he is now back on Twitter. He hasn't tweeted yet. He, he Elon Musk, has reinstated Donald Trump's Twitter account, which was cancelled in 2020, early 2020. Um, so yeah, that, that that's uh, he. It's he a very entertaining person on Twitter, and he knows how to keep people focused on him. So he has a lot of advantages that other politicians don't have. As a politician, you need to have personality. Other politicians all look and sound the same. And of course, you need to know what you're doing. You need to understand the issues that people are facing and you need to be able to provide genuine solutions or you need to be able to convince the people that you have the solutions and you will be able to implement those solutions. Donald Trump has done that in the past. But yeah, I think uh, I think he faces significant challenges when it comes to the 2024 election. Firstly, from within his own party, if he succeeds in that, then he will face... uh, I mean, the entire media in the US. I would say that 90% of the US media is controlled by the Democrats. And people public opinion is easy to easy to sway through social media and through the mainstream media if you keep saying the same things over and over and over again and not just one person but the entire media machinery it, it's very easy to influence people's minds people are people are very gullible people don't understand things unfortunately that's how it is so i think it's difficult for donald trump yeah so that's the point number 2 that I think it will be very very hard for him to come back. Uh, can India and Indians really trust him? We can trust Donald Trump to, if he does come to power in 2024, uh, we can trust him to uh, uh, to pursue his national interest and his self-interest. You can't trust him beyond that. He, he, he's not going to serve India. He's going to, if he does become president, his duty will be to serve his nation. America first, like he says, make America great again. That's always been his campaign slogan. That's always been his platform, his plank, that I'm here to make America great again. So if India can create that sort of relationship with him, in which we say that, you know, we will help you make your country great again. What do you need from us? And what can we get in return? That sort of, if we have that sort of relationship and that sort of negotiating platform, it will work well so we can trust him to try and fulfill his campaign promises to make america great again and uh, you know all those things you can't trust him to to favor your nation if if you want him to favor your nation you have to give him something in return that's how it goes right um so to the, to that extent we can certainly trust him so that's what I think about this. I think he I do not believe that he is he is somebody who who will betray his nation in favor of the Chinese, yeah. The you know that's I don't think so, I don't believe that at all. Secondly, I think it will be very hard for him to come back. It will be much harder than in 2016. And thirdly, we can trust him to want to fulfill and to do his best to fulfill his campaign promises if he is re-elected. And if we if India can help him in that aspect in that matter then it will be mutually beneficial for India and the U.S. Yeah, But overall, we know that he has been, of all the recent U.S. presidents, he was the one who was the most favorably inclined towards India. I mean, if you talk about George W. Bush, if you talk about Barack Obama, if you talk about uh, Mr. Biden, and if you talk about Trump, I mean, these are the four re- more, more recent ones, the 20, 21st century presidents, more or less. Yeah. So... Uh, so, yeah, he has been the one that was the most favorably inclined among all of these. If you go back one more presidency, Clinton it, Clinton was very much pro-Pakistan, right? Bill Clinton, I'm talking about. So, Trump would be very much open to negotiate with India and work in, in mutually constructive and beneficial ways. So, that in that sense, it could be good for India. But I think Indians should not hope too much that he will be re-elected. It's going to be a hard climb for him. Um uh, he has already been demonized to the high heavens or to the to the depths of hell by the American media, but of course he was able to win the Twitter, uh, the Twitter uh, poll whether he should be reinstated or not. So that he does seem still to have a lot of popularity. He still is the biggest uh, face in the Republican Party, so he has some advantages, but he also has a steep climb ahead of him. So that's where it is. And let's see how it goes. But we should always keep our options open. Okay, Rohan Dwivedi says, what's your take on the handshake between Prime Minister Modi and modern-day Mao of China? Is there going to be some normalcy in the relationship between India and China? Manmat says, Xi Jinping and Modi-ji finally shook hands at the G27 in, in Bali. What future does do in Dutch, India-China relations hold in the upcoming years? Look, f- let me say this all over... One more time, I, I will keep saying this. India cannot trust China. The Chinese are a hegemonic, expansionist, imperialist power. Right? That's, that's the core focus of the Chinese Communist Party, to make China the number one nation in the world at the expense of everybody else. They don't want a bipolar world. They don't want a multipolar world. They want a unipolar world with China at the center. China is the imperial power. Everybody else is their vassal. Everybody else comes and, and pays tribute to China. That is the envisioned world order and that's their world that's 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 the kind of world they would like to create now they have faced setbacks uh, setbacks of late the coronavirus crisis has been a disaster for china it's still a big big problem in china they still have the zero lockdown pro- policy and all that so their ascend their rise to ascendancy has been greatly delayed they still hope that they will replace the us as the sole superpower but it's still just a hope uh, the belt and road uh, initiative which was supposed to be the vehicle that takes china there has kind of stalled but they would like to re- restart it with the help of brics plus plus brics plus expanded brics and all that yeah so that's the situation yeah um so if so it is also in good for india if there is a new emerging world, world order we don't want a chinese dominated unipolar world order we want a multipolar world order a multipolar world order in which there are multiple sources, centers of power, multiple poles, India, China, Russia, the US, the US-led bloc, the, the, the Western bloc, and so on. Maybe we would like some nations in Africa also to step up, if, if it's possible, to free them from uh, Western colonia, colonization and all, and all that. So India seeks a multipolar world. And the, the, how, do you, how do you make such a multipolar world come about? Well, the most important uh, factor or the most important vehicle that India can use for creating a multipolar world order would be BRICS, BRICS+. Plus. Because now more than a dozen nations have, have, have uh, stated that they want to join BRICS. Many uh, nations have actually applied officially. Indonesia applied this week at the G20 summit to join BRICS. Um, other nations have also applied. So BRICS is a is a block that's going to expand. It's going to be BRICS plus. It will still be called BRICS. We cannot uh, keep on adding uh, letters of the alphabet to it. But it's going to be called BRICS plus or BRICS plus plus, whatever it is. By 2025, 2026, you could have maybe five, six more uh, nations that are members of BRICS. Maybe more. We will see how it goes. The Saudis want to join. So G20. We had this G20 summit, right? G20 has been hijacked by the US and the G7 nations if you look at the wording of the, the final statement of the g20 summit it's you can see there's so much references to russia and ukraine and war which has nothing to do with the other nations so it's been hijacked by G2, by the by the g7 nations especially by the us the g7s are all us vassals i keep using this word vassal but it's something that you will see lots of other major publications also starting to use nowadays all right so G20 has been hijacked by the US. I mean, what business does does uh, Ursula von der Leyen have being in being bring uh, being at the G20 summit? The EU is not a member of of G20. Individual nations are members of G20. There are twenty nations, and yet all these things are imported into into G20, and so on. So, the core nations of G20, especially the Eastern nations, the Asian nations, I. I can assure you, they do not like this. They do not like their G20 organization being co-opted and hijacked in this manner. Yeah, They also have their own national interests to pursue. They would like there to be more trade, more interoperationality, more cooperation between especially the so-called Global South and the Eastern nations. So for that, they have ASEAN. They also have other things as well. So the focus will now move more towards that. And they will also now want to be part of, part of BRICS because BRICS excludes... BRICS has nothing to do with the G7 nations or NATO or the EU or the US. So that's where they will feel more comfortable. That's where they see enormous potential for growth and progress. So that's why BRICS is becoming more and more attractive to these nations. But BRICS is a non-starter. If the two major nations within BRICS, then their leaders can't even talk to each other. We have these tensions with China. The undemarcated border, the the Chinese occupied Tibet, which they occupied in the nineteen fifties, the Chinese claims on Indian territory, the and the recent military clashes, the Galwan clashes, or the other um, the salami slicing tactics of China, trying to encroach here and there all the time, constantly. This is a major f- point of friction. It could even lead to a war in the future, if this situation continues. BRICS is a non-starter. BRICS cannot be a viable organization. And India understands that. The Chinese also understand that. And that's why it looks like there's been some diplomacy behind the scenes. And it was agreed that India and China, the leaders will meet, albeit briefly, just for a couple of minutes, you know, just a brief greeting, some pleasantries, a few words exchanged, and that's it. In full view of the world, in public, at the G20 uh, official dinner, whatever that event was. So that was a message to the nations that want to join BRICS, that that we can make things work. You don't need to worry about it, right? Because it is good for India if BRICS expands and like-minded nations join. It's also good for China. They would like to use BRICS for their own purposes, of course. They would like to restart the BRI, the Belt and Road thing. Yeah, and they could use BRICS to kickstart it. But it's also good for India that more influence and more power comes towards BRICS. Rather, it's it's all, the entire world is right now under the stranglehold of the West, Everything. The so-called rules-based world order, the the whims based world order. So we would like to see a parallel system emerging, which is more in our favor. Of course, the Chinese will be involved. Of course, the Russians are, are involved. We can trust Russia. India and Russia have no friction points whatsoever. But China is the problem that Russia and India don't trust. But we will have to find a way to work together. And that's the reason why the handshake happened. It doesn't mean things are going to be normal. I would still be surprised if the Chinese agree to actually uh, finally uh, demarcate the India-Tibet border. That entire process will take a few years, but it's never started. They have these endless rounds of meetings between India and China in which nothing, no progress ever happens. The Chinese are doing this deliberately. They are deliberately stalling this. They have no interest in demarcating the border. Well, I think India will have to negotiate with the Chinese hard. India will have to play hardball that if you do want this thing to go forward, bricks, if you do want normalcy in BRICS, if you want BRICS to be a viable organization, these are the non-negotiable conditions. So maybe there is, there is some progress perhaps happening in that matter. We don't know. Negotiations, Diplomacy always happens in secret. Negotiations always happen in secret. Maybe something is happening. Maybe something is not. We don't know. Assuming it's happening, we hope that things can get better. But we have to always remember that we cannot trust China. All right? So maybe things are getting better. Maybe India-China relations will improve. But even if they do improve, we have to always be wary. China is much more powerful militarily and economically. We have to ensure that we catch up with them. So that's got to be the main focus. India ideally needs another 20 years without any major conflict, major major war. Then we can deal with the world yeah so that is our focus and brics will help us get in the go in that direction if we can maintain some kind of normalcy even fake normalcy with china it will be great next 20 years so that's what's happening that is the future of india china relations there could still be war who knows if the chinese so decide india will not initiate any war but uh, if the Chinese so decide, if Xi Jinping and his Communist Party uh, minions so decide, if the, then there could be something. But hopefully there will be more normalcy and uh, and less friction. That would be good for the whole world. I'm sure the Chinese also understand this. So let's see how it goes. But I think things could get better. And let's hope so. Okay, three questions. Rishi says, India just took over the G20 presidency. Yes. Our government has hinted that the next summit is to be held in Srinagar. Pakistan is expected to make some noise. We will face some real problems in hosting it in Srinagar. Is it geopolitically beneficial for us to host it there? Manmuth says, G20 summit 2023 is most likely to be held in JNK. Pakistan is a nobody, but what significance will this act have upon China? China also occupies a big part of that region of India. Raghav says, uh, India is planning to keep G20 meet of commerce ministers in Kashmir. What do you think will be the geopolitical consequences of the same? Okay. So, um, most likely, so even I've, I've been hearing this for the past few months, that maybe the next G20 summit or some part of it, some portion of it, will be held in Kashmir, maybe in Ladakh, maybe in Srinagar, somewhere else, but in Kashmir, right? In Jammu and Kashmir. So, what does this mean? So, Pakistan, like you say, is a nobody. Pakistan doesn't matter. They can. They can howl to the heavens they can protest they can complain doesn't make any difference they, there is nothing they can do about this right so if india holds the summit or some portion of it in kashmir jammu and kashmir or in ladakh or some portion of that region what does it mean who what what is the what are we doing what what do we mean what are we what are the s- signals that we are sending and to whom are we sending those signals the first signal that india will be sending is that jammu and kashmir and Ladakh are integral and inalienable parts of India. That's the first thing. And this signal is essentially being sent to two forces, or two nations, China and the US, and the West. The West is essentially all controlled and owned by the US. The Americans portray Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh as disputed territory. The Americans have been doing this. For the past 60-70 years. They portray it as a disputed, dis, disputed territory. So if India holds the summit there, it's an assertion to the Americans that this is Indian territory. And then the Americans will also have to come and attend. So if they do come and attend, it means they're assenting and they're agreeing to the fact that this is Indian territory, symbolically. Yeah, they may not say it in those words, but they are coming to JNK or Ladakh in. Being part of the G20 summit there, which means that they are on Indian territory, and they just by being there, they are symbolically uh, recognizing that fact. The same goes to China. The Chinese portray JNK and Radaq, etc., Gilgit, Gilgit Baldess and all that as a disputed territory. The Chinese occupy a part of JNK, the Shaksgam Valley, yes. So, uh, the, the, which was a uh, part of POK, and the Pakistanis then illegally gave that portion of, of uh, Ladakh to the Chinese, the Shaksgam Valley region. The, so the Chinese are in occupation of our territory, not just Aksai Chin, but also the Shaks, Shaksgam Valley. Of course, they also occupy Aksai Chin. And they portray the entirety of JNK and Ladakh and all that as disputed territory. So if we hold the G20 summit there, they will also, the Chinese will also have to come, the, Ch- the Xi Jinping will have to come, right, and attend the summit. And if he does that, it's a de facto symbolic recognition of the fact that this is Indian Territory. He may not say it, but that's how it goes. So it is going to be a geopolitically big statement and, and, and symbolism that this is Indian Territory. And the whole world now comes here and recognizes the fact. So if we do it, which we should, it will be great. So that's the reason why if it is going to happen, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in in Jammu and Kashmir or Ladakh or wherever it is, wherever it, the final decision is taken. If it is Srinagar, great, wonderful. So the question is, uh, that's why it is. A, it's a good thing. It will be geopolitically beneficial for us to, for us to host it there. Uh, what significance will this act have upon China? Like I said, that that's what it will mean for China as well. It will be a statement to them, and the fact that they do come and attend means means that they are also recognizing the fact that this is part of Indian territory. Um. So, that's what it is. Now, what about the security situation? Will there be any security security problems? Well, if there is any security problem, if there is any potential security risk, that risk will only come from Pakistan because it's right next door. It occupies part of JNK the, and also Gilgit-Baltistan, right? Which is part of... Uh, so, that is illegally occupied by Pakistan and they have this history of, of uh, fomenting terrorism in JNK. So, if there is anything whatsoever which could happen, terrorism or any security issue, it can only be via Pakistan. And obviously the Pakistanis will be forewarned. They'll be told, if anything goes wrong, doesn't matter who does it, we're going to blame you and we're going to make you pay the price for it. So that that's a guarantee. So the, so the Pakistanis will know that when this big G20 meeting, summit is happening, if anything whatsoever happens, even if it's not your fault, we're going to blame you. So I'm sure they will be made to behave. and uh, Because, see, this, this government knows how to make Pakistan behave. Before 2014, there were terrorist attacks in India almost every week. There's this whole list you can find on various websites, including Wikipedia. Dozens, hundreds of terrorist attacks in India before 2014. Every week, almost every day in some part of India. After 2014, everything ends. Everything stopped. Because this government has a very hardline policy against terrorism. Of course, you had one or two incidents like the Uri attack, which was avenged brutally, and then there was uh, the other thing as well. So then, so the Pakistanis were made to understand that we're going to take very severe action against you. The surgical strikes and the Balakot air strike were two examples of that, and we can escalate it for much further. So the Pakistanis know that they can play, play with fire. So I think it will go off safely, securely. If anything happens, the Pakistanis will, have to be, will be made to pay a very, very heavy price for it. So I am sure they will not do any nonsense, any mischief. So that's about the uh, possibility of the G20 summit. The next one, the 2023 G20 summit happening in maybe Srinagar, maybe somewhere in JNK nadak That will be great. I think we should do that. Akshay says, Saudi Crown Prince Salman, Mohammed bin Salman's actions... In recent developments like expressing interest to join BRICS, giving special waiver like removing police verification requirements for Indian for Saudi visa, visa for Indians and other military and strategic cooperation with India and wanting to get away from the Western bloc, are we seeing Saudi Arabia as an important player in the current geopolitical world order? Very good question. Very good question. Let's take a look at the map. Now I don't have a separate map for Saudi Arabia, so we will go to the the map that I usually that I always use let's take a look at saudi arabia from the perspective of geography so we uh india is here as we all know yeah in the center of the screen you go westwards you have the arabian peninsula our nearest neighbor maritime neighbor is oman then you have yemen and if you go further west you have saudi arabia uh, after crossing the uae so saudi arabia is not really very far from us it's obviously a very it's the world's largest uh producer if i'm not mistaken the of of uh, petroleum products oil gas all that mainly oil yes and that's why it is prosperous and that's why it is geopolitically incredibly important and significant and that's why the americans have so much of an interest in saudi arabia so uh, this entire nation was carved out of the chaos in, in the in the aftermath of the so-called first world war which was which was the first european tribal war yes and this this nation state was established by the this kingdom was established by the british uh, and uh, later on, after the, the decline of the British Empire and the and the transference of power from London to Washington, the Americans became the major patrons of Saudi Arabia. And they have propped up uh, this this dynasty, the House of Saud. And they are the major beneficiaries. They have been the major beneficiaries of, the, of oil from this region. Now the Americans are a major oil producer through fracking, through shale oil, all that. So, uh, and yet Saudi Arabia is a major, major nation because it is it contributes a significant uh, amount of the oil that is consumed globally. And it has a very big say in the oil prices. The amount of production that it does is, uh, has a direct impact on the oil prices in the world. It is obviously the major nation in the OPEC plus group, which is the cartel of uh, petroleum exporting countries. Now, India and Saudi Arabia past six seven years ever since mr modi came to power the relations between india and saudi arabia ever since have been excellent mr modi has made it a point to ensure that india and saudi arabia and other nations in the gulf region have excellent relations right Uh, even the uae even oman india even has a a couple of military bases if i'm not mistaken let's not talk about it here but yes we have excellent cooperation with oman with the uae excellent relations and with saudi arabia and the Saudis are most likely, if I'm not mistaken, India's number one or number two uh, supplier of, of uh, oil. Yes. Now, recently what happened is, uh, before the midterm elections, uh, inflation was rising in the US. Uh, gas Gasoline prices were had, be, had risen significantly. And uh, Joe Biden requested the Saudis to ramp up oil production so that the prices will go down and he will win the election. He even visited Saudi Arabia but the Saudis refused. And they cut down, instead of increasing oil production, they cut oil production by 2%, which uh, caused a certain amount of surging, a, sm- a certain percentage increase in the in the oil prices worldwide, which is something the Americans, I can assure you, are greatly annoyed about. That is a, go- that is a bad thing from their perspective. Our vassal state is refusing to obey our orders. What on earth is happening? That's not good from their perspective. So that is a red mark against Mohammed bin Salman, from the American perspective. Now Mohammed bin Salman is saying that he wants to join BRICS. That essentially for the Americans is like their vassal state saying that I will now no longer obey you, and I will go and join the enemy camp. That's essentially what it means from the US perspective. That is a very dangerous game that Mohammed bin Salman is playing. He's a very brave man. And clearly, he he wants to wean away his nation from the U.S. influence. The the thing is this. Today, there are U.S. troops on Saudi territory, more or less permanently stationed there. You can look it up, what the numbers are, where, where the U.S. military bases are. And the Saudis, they buy significant quantities of U.S. weaponry every year. The Saudis have one of the top five military budgets in the world, if I'm not mistaken. I think the top five, One, it's in the top five. And they exclusively buy U.S. weaponry. So it's heavily dependent on the U.S. from that perspective. It's a U.S. client state. It's a U.S. puppet state. It's a U.S. vassal state. It's been that for a very long time. Now Mohammed bin Salman mm-hmm. wants to take his nation out of the clutches of the empire, of, of the superpower. And these are all steps that he is taking in that direction. Not obeying the US diktat to ramp up oil production, instead, he's cutting oil production. That is a sign of rebellion. Then, expressing his intent, his willingness, his desire to join BRICS, that is an even bigger act of rebellion. Yes, in this great closeness with India, uh, giving various waivers to Indians for. for Acquiring Saudi visas, no more. There's no more any need for police verification here. Yeah? So these are all steps that bring the two nations closer. Now India is a nation that the U.S. would want to make their vassal state, in, but India is steadfastly refused. That we will not bow to your dictates and we will not, you know, become another Japan. So India has an independent foreign policy. The Saudis want to create an independent policy, foreign policy, and that's what we are seeing. That these these steps are in that direction if the Saudis succeed, if Mohammed bin Salman succeeds in taking Saudi Arabia out of the clutches of the empire, or even partially out of the clutches, and become a member of BRICS, and if he succeeds in surviving this transition period, this pivot, then Saudi Arabia could become a significantly important player in the Middle East and in the overall geopolitical world order. It's it's a difficult thing to do. Why is it difficult? Because BRICS... Before Saudi Arabia, Iran has applied to join BRICS. If you study some history, you will realize that Saudi Arabia and Iran are essentially like enemies. They have a very fraught relationship. They have a very hostile relationship. Saudi Arabia and Iran. These are more or less enemy nations. So if Saudi Arabia has to join BRICS, they will have to make some kind of peace with Iran. It's possible, but it's complicated. Yeah? So that's one obstacle in the way, but I am sure if India and China can possibly perhaps make things work, I am sure Saudi Arabia and Iran can also possibly perhaps make things work. But the main problem is the overlord, the United States, the empire, the superpower. Will Mohammed bin Salman succeed in achieving this transition, this pivot to the East? He would like to become part of the East, the Eastern Bloc, not the Western Bloc. Will the Americans allow him to do this? I can assure you, the Americans will throw everything, will use every lever, every asset that they have at their disposal to stop Mohammed bin Salman from transitioning, from pivoting to the East. You will, I, I am pretty sure, very soon you will start seeing all kinds of articles in the... English speaking media, the global media about how bad and brutal and unjust of a ruler Mohammed bin Salman is how undemocratic he is what sort of uh, atrocities are being done in Saudi Arabia against LGBTQ++++ plus 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 people what is the, uh, the, the situation, the position of women in Saudi society, how downtrodden it is and how despotic and brutal and evil of a dictator Mohammed bin Salman is Obviously, the Jamal Khashoggi case is there. They can always bring that out, right? I can sense this coming very soon. If Mohammed bin Salman persists in steering his nation eastwards. So it will start like that. And then they will use every other means at their disposal, including regime change. So I would say that if Mohammed bin Salman is determined to do this, he must have done some very tough and hard calculations, and he must have come to the conclusion that he is in a position to actually succeed, maybe try and do this, and uh, he will obviously have to look out for his own personal safety. Yeah, So it's a, it's a very bold move that he is making. It is a very dangerous thing that he is doing, going up against the, the overlord, and it could be very dangerous for me. We know what happens to US puppets who turn their backs in the US and try to become independent. Iraq tried to do that. They tried to suddenly create their own uh, independent foreign policy. Yeah, that's what Saddam Hussein tried to do. We know we know what happened to him, and there are many more examples. So, uh, so yeah, this, I, and I even hear that uh, Xi Jinping is due to visit Riyadh very soon. Maybe in a week, maybe in a month or so. Yeah, he is scheduled to visit Riyadh. So yeah, that could be a move in that direction that Saudi Arabia wants to become part of BRICS and since China is the major the number one nation in the BRICS group uh, he will have to run it past Xi Jinping, so maybe that's what's happening yeah so Xi Jinping is personally going to visit Riyadh Xi Jinping usually doesn't travel much he recently went went to Bali now he is going to imminently soon visit Riyadh so there will be something happening there so and then Saudi Arabia will have to make make good with with Iran in some way, you know, find a working relationship, a, a way of cooperating, a way of lessening the tensions, and so on. So yeah, it's a complicated situation. It's a complicated scenario that we are witnessing. Global geopolitics right now is very complicated, and there's a whole lot of realignment happening. But overall, if if Mohammed bin Salman is able to somehow successfully pull this off then Saudi Arabia will become a major addition to the eastern block, to the BRICS block and it could become a major player in in geopolitics but it is a very dangerous thing the Middle East has been in crisis for decades, it's all being the, the strings are all being pulled from the west they have created these artificial lines of conflict, of tensions sectarian tensions national tensions and all that and they could pull off something else So you could see things getting really bad in the Middle East. Maybe next year. This year is the year of the Ukraine war. Maybe 2023 will be the year of tensions and crisis in the Middle East. I may be wrong. Maybe Maybe I'll be right. Let's see how 2023 goes. I think 2023, the focus will be on the Middle East and on Saudi Arabia and on BRICS. And not so much on Ukraine. Let's see how it goes. Okay, the next question is by Daniel Nicholson. The US Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, released a statement that India could buy as much oil from Russia uh, as it wants along the lines of the price cap mechanism, mechanism, while somebody from the Indian side said that we do not have to follow the price cap regulations. How is this shaping the new consumer-seller relations between India and Russia? And is the US resigned to Indian adamancy or crude oil procurement from Russia? So yes, the Americans were insisting that, see, this price cap, we don't know what it is. It's not been announced yet. Maybe it will be announced in a, in a week, maybe two weeks, By definitely in December, by December. Uh, by mid-December, whenever it is announced, it will be soon. So they want to impose a price cap on Russian oil. They want to decide what is the highest price at which the Russians can sell their oil. Yeah, And they want India, they, they were saying that they want India to abide by the American price cap on Russian oil means don't pay more than this much amount to russians to the russians for the oil you purchase from them india said no now the Ameri- and india kept saying no we will not do this we will buy oil from russia at discounted rates and and, uh, and it's it's re- between india and russia it's nothing to do with the us you will not dictate to us what we do that's what india's position has been throughout now the americans are saying okay India does not have to abide by with the price cap. Go buy as much as you want. But, the problem is this, India does not have a fleet of oil tankers. India for the past 70 years has not bothered to invest in a major fleet of oil super tankers. Which means that India for more than 90% of its oil imports has to depend on oil tankers, ships, that belong to other nations. Now, whenever you are doing this, you need uh, what's called insurance, and there are some other things as well. And the Americans and this insurance thing, all of that is controlled by the West. So, whenever you have uh, this oil shipment coming through, you need to uh, acquire insurance for it. For whatever reason, if the if something goes wrong, you will be reimbursed the money. If there's an accident, if if the oil tanker is diverted, if somebody else, if some pirates steal it, or whatever, whatever can go wrong, if something goes wrong and you don't receive the oil, then it will be reimbursed. That's why you buy insurance. The insurance providers are all Western. And if India goes ahead with this, the West Mm -hmm. will not be willing to insure these oil supplies to India. And if there is no insurance, then the, the, the oil will not be available. Of course, India can do some circumvention of this. Um, you know, there are some shadowy tankers available that don't belong to any nation, which can be acquired without any insurance and all that, but it's much more high risk. It's risky. So because India has not invested in its own national fleet of oil super tankers, that's why India is now facing this conundrum. So the thing is, okay, you buy oil at whatever price you want, but we will... Not ensure your oil supplies. So you will not be able to um, use Western tankers or, or whatever. So it, it's they're trying to make things very difficult for India. Yeah. So that's the situation India is in right now. So what does India do about this? Do the Russians have enough tankers to send to India? But even if something happens and India will lose money, yeah. Or do we cooperate with the, with the Chinese? Will the Chinese be willing to cooperate? So that's the kind of situation India is facing right now. So, India and Russia want to trade without any external interference. India wants to buy. I think, if I am not mistaken, Russia is now the number two, or number three supplier of oil to India. Maybe the number one, I'm not sure. It was not even in the top 10, but now it's in the, in the top three. That's how much oil India is uh, buying from Russia, which has been the lifeline for Russia. Yeah. And that's how the Russians have been able to ensure that they don't become, they don't have to go begging to China. And they, that's why the Russians are still an independent, uh, de facto, indi- um, a genuinely independent nation. The Chinese have not been able to make Russia their vassal state because of the Indian purchases of enormous amounts of Russian oil. Now this situation is around the corner, so India will have to find a solution to that. So that's where we are. So India will insist that it's going to buy oil at whatever price it decides or it negotiates with Russia. The Americans are known to, to dictate. They they have no right to dictate to us what price cap to use and all that. But now this new spanner has been thrown in the works. So let's see in what direction things go. But yeah, it's it's complicated right now and India will have to find a solution to this problem. Okay, Vinu says, please tell about the new North Korean missile test. Is it aimed at Japan or the US? Is North Korea planning a new nuclear test? Right, I think two or three days ago, the North Koreans uh, tested a ballistic missile, an intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM. So what's the definition of an ICBM? I think it's a missile, it's it's a ballistic missile that has a range of more than, I don't know, 6,000 kilometers, 7,000 kilometers, I'm not sure what exactly it is. It's a missile that's able to, that you can fire from from one continent and you can hit a different continent with it. It's a missile with an extended range. Minimum, I would say 5,000 kilometers. Most likely, I would say that an ICBM, from my perspective, should have a range of at least 8,000 kilometers. That's what I would, that's that's how I would classify a missile as an ICBM. Anyhow, the uh, North Koreans, recently tested, like 2 or 3 days ago, a new missile. They have been testing lots of missiles, short-range missiles, but this latest uh, test was that of an ICBM. So it was an ICBM with a looping trajectory. It rose about 6000 kilometers plus above the surface of the Earth, and it splashed down in the sea. Let's take a look at the map, as always. Where is the map? (laughs) Let's put the map on the screen. So let's go to Korea. You have South Korea, you have North Korea, yeah, as you can see. West, sorry, east of North Korea, you have the Sea of Japan, and then you have Japan itself. So uh, the missile, I think uh, it splashed down in the ocean approximately, uh, one second, approximately a thousand kilometers away from where it was launched. So it splashed down, its its impact in the ocean was a th- approximately a thousand kilometers from the point of, of uh, from where it was launched and it rose about 6,000 plus kilometers above the surface of the earth. <laughs> so if you do the simple, you know, calculations, mathematical calculations, mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is basically uh, apparent that the range of the missile is in excess of 10,000 kilometers. So this ballistic missile seems to be an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile, one that is capable of targeting the United States. So let's see what is the distance from, let's say, the Korean Peninsula to, let's say, California. It's about 9,600 kilometers. And and so this missile definitely has a range of more than 10,000 kilometers. Some publications are saying that it has a range of about 15,000 kilometers. In that case, it would be the Hwasong-17 missile, which is an enormous missile. It's a two-stage missile, if I'm not mistaken, with liquid fuel. So liquid fuel fuel missiles need to be prepared because liquid fuel is is hard. It has to be kept at a very low temperature and so on. So it's a liquid fuel missile with two stages. It's an enormous missile, maybe the largest missile in the world, with a range of about 15,000 kilometers, in case it is the Hwasong-7 that was tested. So these ICBM tests are only aimed at the U.S. Because if you want to target Japan, you can use an intermediate range or or short range ballistic missile or a cruise missile. I'm not sure the North Koreans have cruise missiles, but they do do have ballistic missiles of short and medium ranges. So you don't need to test a 15,000 kilometer range missile if you want to target Japan. So it's clear that the target is the U.S. And it's a message that they're sending to the U.S. that that your entire nation... Is within range of our ballistic missile. So this new missile test, in case it was that fifteen thousand range, fifteen thousand kilometer range missile, it was aimed at the United States. Uh, obviously, these these missiles can also be used to target China. So that's always something that we have to keep in mind. That look, North Korea is a Chinese client state. Let's understand that. It is a, a nation, it's a regime, it's a dictatorial regime that is propped up by the Chinese. If you study the history of the of the Korean War and all that, the, whatever ensued after that, it was essentially a conflict between the Western Bloc, the US-led Bloc, and the USSR-led Bloc. At that time, China was very close to the USSR. So the Russians, the Soviets assisted China in this conflict in Korea. And uh, so that's that's how this uh, peninsula, the Korean Peninsula, was was. Partitioned between North Korea and South Korea. That's what the that's what the English speaking empire does everywhere it goes: Northern mm-hmm. Ireland, Southern Ireland, India, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the fragmentation of the Indian subcontinent, the partition of the Korea the Korean uh, nation, and so on. Uh, and South Korea is a is a U.S. client state. It's a U.S. vassal state. It's under permanent U.S. occupation. So North Korea is a Chinese vassal. It's a Chinese client state, and this. Uh, missile test, this ICBM test was aimed at the US. It was aimed at sending a message to the US. And it's essentially a Chinese sock puppet that the Chinese are telling the US that we have multiple ways of targeting you. Now, is the uh, is North Korea planning a new nuclear test? So if I recall correctly, the North Koreans have done I think six nuclear tests thus far in the past I don't know, a decade or so, right? And uh, it is I heard that they may be getting ready for a new seventh nuclear test. It's possible. So we don't quite know. If it it happens, I'm sure it will be announced with great fanfare on North Korean media, and we'll come to know about it. And obviously, if you have uh, tracking stations, you you can detect the seismic signature of a nuclear test, and you can actually even calculate the yield of the nuclear device and so on. So uh once it happens, we will know it. I believe they could possibly be getting ready for a new nuclear test. Obviously, if you're testing ballistic missiles, you should also uh show that you are capable of of you have nuclear weapons that you can use as warheads for those, those missiles. So it's possible that a new nuclear test may be in the offing maybe sometime soon. Let's see let's wait and watch and we will know. Okay, Swarup Avedia says, rising tensions between two of NATO's biggest militaries are driving fears of the first war between between two NATO alliance members. What will be the US's or NATO's role if a war begins between Greece and Turkey? This is a flashpoint that most people are not paying attention to right now. Let's take a look at the map. Where's the map? Over here. Okay, let's see. We know where India is. We know how to orient ourselves. Go west, 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 west. Go to the Mediterranean region. And that's where you have Turkey and Greece. So, what's happening here? So, Greece and Turkey have a very nasty history. A history that goes back to the Ottoman occupation of the Anatolian Peninsula. The entirety of Anatolia, which is the major major portion of Turkey, the peninsular region between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, this region is called Anatolia. For the past 3,000 or so years ago, it was Greek. The city of Troy is on the western coast of Anatolia, on the Aegean Sea, and so on. Then the Turks occupied Anatolia gradually, beginning about, I don't know, what, 800 years or so ago? Yeah, They were fleeing from the great armies of the great Mongol conqueror Chinggis Khan. And that's why they came south from Central Asia and they entered Anatolia and they entered European history, essentially. And then they slowly conquered parts of Anatolia, and then they conquered the whole of Anatolia. And eventually you had the Ottoman Empire that conquered parts of Europe as well. It was a very large empire. Yeah. So that's the history. And Greece was under Ottoman occupation for a significant period of time. The Greeks don't like Turkey for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. I'll not go into the history. If you're interested, look it up. I think it makes sense. What kind of uh, atrocities would have been perpetrated on the Greeks. Yeah. Uh, So even in the late 19th century, the city of Thessaloniki was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was then called Salonika. Uh, And then there were many wars between Greece and Turkey, uh, including in the 1920s, the Turkish War of Independence, in which Mustafa Kemal Ataturk was able to evict the Western uh, coalition out of Turkey and, and create an independent nation of Turkey. So Greece and Turkey They have this blood hatred, this blood enmity. Many Turks actually have Greek ethnicity. And the reason for that, if you want to know, please study it yourself. Yeah, I will not go into that right now. No need to create controversies unnecessarily at this point. So Greece and Turkey are enemies. Understand that. Greece and Turkey are actually mortal enemies who find themselves both part of NATO. Strangely enough, so that's the thing which I keep talking about. That the real major power in Western Europe and Southern Europe is the U.S. That's the real name major major power in, in Europe, in, in especially uh, East uh, Western and Southern Europe. It's the U.S. that's the major power. They have kept this continent more or less peaceful. Obviously, they have done some mischief here and there. You can look it up. So that's why these two enemy nations are part of this U.S.-led coalition. NATO. Now what is happening? So now why are we f- seeing these tensions between these two nations? right? So that's the history. Now now Greece and Turkey are now becoming more and more this, this relationship is becoming more and more tense. Tensions are rising. What is exacerbating the rising of the tensions? That we have to understand. Something must be happening, right? That is causing the tensions to rise. What is happening is the question. And who is causing this to happen? Let's see. Let us see. Let's put something. uh, So before I, I tell you why the tensions are rising, let me show you an example of the rising tensions. This is just this week. Mr. Erdogan was in Bali for the G20 summit and he threatened Greece. Like I said yesterday, Erdogan repeats threat against Greece during G20. The Turkish president warned the neighboring country, Greece, that he could invade it suddenly one night. What a thing to say. What a thing to say. Uh, He told reporters that turkey can come suddenly one night and that its neighbor should mind its place and remember the history. Remember the history. Remember what we did to you. What we have done to you for centuries. Mind your place. And we can come suddenly one night. Any night. We can come. And things will go really bad for you. So now let me explain why. These tensions are rising. Why is Mr. Erdogan so un, so angry? Let's understand. Here is one example. Do you see this? Turkey condemns U.S. decision to lift Cyprus arms embargo. Let's understand where is Cyprus. Let's go back to the map. Where is Cyprus, and wh- what is what does Cyprus have to do with all this? So Cyprus is this island here. You see this island here. It is west of Lebanon and south of Turkey, Anatolia. This island has historically been a Greek island. During the Ottoman occupation, there were lots of people who were converted to the Ottoman religion. And northern Cyprus is now, in the 1970s, the Turks invaded the island of Cyprus, and they currently occupy the northern, let's say, quarter or third of the island. There is this dashed line that you see over here on the map, it's it's like a line of control yeah between the greek held island uh, parts of the island which is southern cyprus and the turkish held part which is northern cyprus and turkey has a military presence on cyprus there is a significant turkish military presence on cyprus yeah and the americans have had a policy for the past 30 40 35 years or so to not interfere in this dispute yeah and the americans had an arms embargo On Cyprus, which means that they had a policy of not selling any arms to Cyprus, which means the Greek Cyprus. And now what's happened? They have changed that policy. They have decided to lift the Cyprus arms embargo, which means they are arming the Greek held portion of the island against the Turkish held portion of the island. So if there are tensions rising, who is creating the rising of the tensions? It's the U.S. Now we have to understand why they're doing this as well. So this is one thing, yeah. So they have the Americans have fully lifted the weapons embargo on the divided island of Cyprus, starting in twenty twenty three. The Turks said it would start an arms race, and so on. So they are selling various uh, weapons and so on. The Americans are. Let's see what is written here. Let's take a look at a different article to understand what the Americans are arming the Cypriots with. Yeah, this is an example of the weaponry that that the Americans are selling to Cyprus. Greece receives more more M117 Guardian armored safety vehicles from the US. So... uh, The U.S. government plans to supply more than around around 1,200 armored vehicles to Greece by the end of this year, 2022, and so on. So that will bolster uh, the the Greek military. And this, I think, is in Greece. So understand this. The Americans are sending arms to Cyprus, the Greek-held portion of Cyprus. uh, They are arming it against the Turkish-held portion of cyprus and they are also sending significant uh, supplies large supplies of of these armored vehicles to to mainland greece itself yeah so the americans are strengthening the greek military and the greek military capabilities and the only enemy greek ha- greece has is turkey that's what's happening that is what is causing these tensions to rise let's let's see some more what, let me put that article back on the screen uh is this the article or is is it a different article? I should see? Let's, see. let's see. Let's see the previous one. Uh let's see where the Americans are. Okay, let's see this third article. Let me let me put a different article. A third article. Here we are. So uh this is an this is an article in in uh, a, maybe a Turkish publication, right? And uh, the Americans are saying that they are arming Greece as a precaution against Russian activities. That's what the Americans uh, Americans are saying. And uh, there is this this place called Alexandroupoli Port, which is very close to the, to the Turkish border, where there is a significant uh, you know influx of American weapons and uh, there is a significant militarization of this port done by the americans uh, the americans say it is it is aimed at russia uh, this place received 14 times more military supplies from the us in 2021 than in previous years a dramatic increase that cannot be solely explained by the by the ukraine war the americans are also providing greece with f35 fighter planes and they have refused to provide those fighter planes to turkey they have refused to provide those fighter planes Turkey. So these are the kind of things that are happening. So it is American activities that are exacerbating and creating these tensions between Turkey and Greece. Yes? And so, so, so that's why uh, Mr. Erdogan is, is so unhappy. That's why he's all riled up. And that's why he's making threats to Greece. That Remember your place in history. remember Remember the past, what we have done to you. And we could come and invade you one night. It could happen. So it is a statement that he's making against Greece and also against the Americans, who are arming Greece. Now, why is the United States arming Greece? The United States is arming Greece and the lag begins. <laughs> the US is arming Greece against Turkey and also to some extent against Russia. Uh, if you see the map, then Greece is not really that far from Russia. Greece is a major nation on the Aegean Sea and uh, it is the sea that connects the Black Sea with the Mediterranean Sea and the, Russia is not very very far off and Greece also had various uh, tensions in the past with Russia. So the Americans are using that as an excuse to arm Greece. Um, we also know that the Turks have in the past uh, bought weapons systems from Russia including uh, the s400 anti missile uh, system so uh, and because the turks bought this this s400 system from the russians that's why the americans refused to sell the f35 fighter plane to turkey so there are tensions between the us and turkey and the fact that the Americans are arming Greece is a continuation of these tensions. So it's it's a message that they are sending to Turkey. And we also have to remember that there are a number of US nuclear weapons on Turkish soil. And these nuclear weapons are aimed at Russia. So it is a very complicated situation that we are in. It's a complicated situation. But Turkey is slowly moving eastwards. Turkey, see, Mr. Erdogan has imperial ambitions. He essentially wants to recreate the Ottoman Empire. Yes. Uh, he has already tried to invade Syria. There are portions of Syria that are, that are occupied, small portions of Syria that are occupied by Turkish troops or have been in the past. Turkey was closely aligned with ISIS during the ISIS disaster in the Middle East. Well, ISIS is a whole different story, but that, that is that was there. Yeah, and Turkey has imperial ambitions of its own. It wants to become an empire of in its own right. It it wants to uh, assume the the global leadership of the Islamic world, which will bring it into conflict with the U.S. Its ambitions are not compatible with U.S. ambitions. Yeah, so it is natural for the for Turkey to slowly drift away from from NATO, but. Since we have U.S. nuclear weapons on Turkish territory, it means you have nuclear U.S. armed personnel also on Turkish territory, which complicates the situation. And yet Turkey is nowadays threatening Greece with war. It could actually happen. The Turks may at some at some point in time decide to attack Greece, which would be a very dangerous thing for them to do. Because the Americans are in a position to destroy Turkey, if the Turks do that. So that's what it is. So, they, So everything is not well in NATO. Uh most likely we will not see a war between Greece and Turkey anytime soon but the tensions exist and the tensions are getting worse. It's the Americans who are making the tensions worse. It's also the and it's also a, a, the reason for that is also because Turkey has its own ambitions. It it does not want to stay an obedient vassal of the US. It also wants to become a major player in the world. So all these and all of this is caused by the visible, gradual decline of U.S. hegemony worldwide. The U.S. is now perceived to be a declining power, which is why Turkey is rising, raising its head and saying that I have my own ambitions and I will do things and I will not obey all the dictates of the U.S. And that's what the Saudis are also doing. And various other nations will now feel like doing that as well. The Germans are unhappy. The Germans are unhappy because they can no longer acquire Russian gas, which they were getting for so cheap. Nord Stream has been destroyed. I I I think we know who did that, right? And so on. So it's a complicated situation. Who's funding Turkey? Most likely there are, well, the Turks have their own economy, of course. They, They have weapons that they sell to the world and obviously there are funds coming in. When it comes to Saudi Arabia, Turkey and Saudi Arabia don't have the best relationship. Just like Saudi Arabia and Iran don't have the best relationship, Saudi Arabia and Turkey don't have the best relationship because both are major powers and Turkey has imperial ambitions. Saudi Arabia is seen, is perceived to be globally, from, from the world's perspective, to be the home of Islam because the two holiest sites of Islam, Mecca and Medina, are in Saudi Arabia. Turkey doesn't like this. Turkey wants to reclaim the position of the great uh, leader of the, of the Islamic world. The the this the, the great caliph the caliphate right uh, the last caliphate was the Ottoman caliphate based out of Constantinople Istanbul they would like that position they would like to reclaim that position but right now Saudi Arabia has that position so that's why there is this rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Turkey and so on and so forth yeah so that is the complicated situation where we are in right now I personally don't see a war breaking out anytime very soon because if the Tur- turks attack greece the americans will defend greece and uh, they the, the americans will not tolerate that sort of uh, that sort of action by one of their one of the nations they consider to be their vassal state so yeah very complicated situation and tensions are rising within within nato and there's this Hirsch says Hirsch asks after the Turks, the Turks have accused USA of bomb blast and them not allowing Finland and Sweden into NATO. Can US think of kicking Turkey out of NATO? What changes can be expected to be made in foreign policy by Tur- against Turkey by India? Okay, okay, let's let's address the bigger thing. That's a good question, right? So recently there was this bomb blast, very unfortunate. In in Istanbul, uh, in, in Constantinople, Istanbul, in one of the major crowded marketplaces or tourist spots or whatever. And I'm not sure how many people lost their lives, very unfortunate, but that's what happened. It was a suicide bomb. And uh, the Turks were able to capture at least one person, a lady, a female, uh, who whom they were accused of being one of the people involved in this terrorist attack and they say that this person who they have captured was a member of the pkk it's a kurdish uh, rebel uh, armed force or whatever you know they they wish to liberate kurdistan from turkish clutches so if you look at the map what is kurdistan kurdistan is a is a state that doesn't exist the region between turkey uh, eastern turkey northwestern iran and so, and northern parts of Iraq and Syria are the homelands of the Kurdish people. The Kurdish people are an Indo-Iranian people. Okay, they are all uh, converted to Islam now, but their language is not an is not Arabic. It's not a Semitic language. It's an Iranian language. They say the Kurdish language. And their culture, their their old culture, was very different from the Arabic or Semitic culture. So the Kurds and one of their the one of the major Islamic historical figures, Salahuddin Ayubi, was a Kurd. He was born in Tikrit in northern Iraq. Yes, if I'm not mistaken, it was Tikrit, which is also the whole, the, the birthplace or 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 hometown of Saddam Hussein al-Tikriti. Anyhow, that's that's I'm, I'm digressing. So Kurdistan is this region which uh, which is divided between multiple nations, between Turkey, between Iran, between Iraq, and parts of Syria as well. Uh, the Yazidis also live in some uh, in parts of in some of these territories so the Kurds have been fighting for a very long time for decades if not centuries for a homeland of their own a nation state of their own right now the territory is divided up between different nations and they all are persecuted in all these different different nations the Iranians persecute the Kurds the Turks persecute the Kurds so do I would I would expect, um, okay, I'll talk about only Iran and Turkey. I'll not talk about Iraq and Syria. So there is Kurdish persecution in Iran as well as in Turkey. They have been fighting what they call a freedom fight. They are freedom fighters in Turkey. There's an organization called the PKK. And the Turks have said that this person who was arrested by them in connection with the bomb blast that happened recently was a member of PKK. Now, PKK is an organization that the Turks say has been funded by the united states so when the us officially uh, sent a message of condolence to the turks to turkey uh, in in response to the bomb blast the turks rejected the american condolences officially yeah so it, they are indirectly accusing the americans of having a hand in this terrorist attack in constantinople in istanbul so once again you are seeing increasing tensions between turkey and the United States. And of course, like uh, Harsh has pointed out, the Turks have been refusing to allow Finland and Sweden to join NATO. So Finland, I think, has made the application to join NATO. I'm not sure about Sweden, but yeah, NATO wants to expand. But the thing is that uh, it has to be, uh, any nation, when it applies to join NATO, all the member states of NATO have to agree to this unanimously. That's the deal. And Turkey is refusing to accept this. And the Americans obviously would want Finland and Sweden and whoever else to join NATO. So yeah, more tensions between the US and Turkey. So the Americans in response to all these activities by Turkey are arming Greece. They have started arming Greece, they have started arming Cyprus and this is all aimed at Turkey. If you arm Greece, Greece is only one major enemy nation, which is Turkey. If you arm Southern Cyprus, that is aimed at Northern Cyprus, which is occupied currently by Turkey. So these are all actions that are hostile to Turkey. These are all actions that negatively affect Turkey's national security. Same like America arming Pakistan, which can only be aimed at India. Similar to that, right? So, there are all these tensions happening between the US and Turkey. So the question is, uh, what changes can be expected? Uh, will the US think of kicking Turkey out of NATO? The US, I don't think, will think of kicking Turkey out of NATO. They will think of squeezing and pressurizing Turkey more. Because Turkey is a very well valuable piece of territory. It's a great territory if you want to contain Russia. The Turks would like to make things better, the, to, to see Turkey-Russia relations get better. They obviously bought the S-400 missile system from Russia, which was very much something that displeased the Americans. And that's why the Americans refused to sell the F-35 fighter plane to, to Turkey. So Turkey is trying to align with Russia to a certain extent. And the Americans will do their best to prevent this from happening. So they will not give up on Turkey. They will keep Turkey a member of NATO and they will pressurize it more and more. They will use every means at their disposal, every lever that they have in their hand at their disposal to pressurize Turkey and make Turkey accede to their demands and make Turkey behave. That's what I see happening. So I think tensions will rise between the US and Turkey. Let's say they expel Turkey from NATO. Then the very strategic straits, the Turkish straits will no longer be under US control. The strait of the Dardanelles and the strait of Bosphorus. These two straits are incredibly important from a geostrategic perspective because they are two choke points that connect the Black Sea with the Mediterranean. Two two choke points, not one. Yeah. So any Russian activity in this region, naval activity, has to pass through these straits so if the russians are sending let's say a submarine or an aircraft carrier or a destroyer to the mediterranean sea from the black sea fleet it will have to pass through these straits so and and the and the rule is that these these vessels have to be completely visible and above the surface of the water when they pass through this region so the americans if they control these two straits these two choke points, they have an incredible amount of, of uh, control and leverage and advantage in this region, which is why they cannot afford to let Turkey slip out of NATO. And of course, they have U.S. military personnel on Turkish territory and U.S. nuclear weapons on Turkish territory, which are aimed at Russia. So they have their claws deep inside Turkey, and I don't, don't see them wishing to let Turkey leave NATO. Yeah? Yeah. So, yeah, that is the game that is being played in NATO, in Europe. Uh, What changes can be expected to be made in foreign policy against Turkey by India? India will try and ensure that India-Turkey relations will remain at a reasonably even keel. No major tensions. Yeah, the Turks keep on making this noise of of supporting Pakistan and all that. But they have their own national interests in mind. They have their own problems to solve in their own geographical region. Uh, whatever support they are doing for Pakistan is more like lip service. They, they, Like I said, they wish to take on the mantle of the leader of the Islamic world. And one of the ways of doing it is, is to support a nation like Pakistan. Uh, if they are actually arming Pakistan in some way, that would be a whole different thing. So India and Turkey, we have never had very good relations. Yeah. And I don't see relations becoming great in the future. But India, I'm sure, will try to make sure that relations don't deteriorate, deteriorate too much. So I don't see Turkey being a very major factor in Indian foreign policy. It is obviously an important nation in Europe, in the Middle East region, in the Mediterranean region. So India has to keep an eye on the, on whatever is happening with Turkey. But I don't see any major shift in foreign policy from India's perspective vis-a-vis Turkey happening anytime soon. Unless something drastic happens, which most likely won't in the near future. Uh, Gautam says, I've heard you talk about how Pakistan will eventually return to India. My question is, do we really need Pakistan or should we just focus on the POK region only so that transit to Central Asia becomes easy? How will Pakistan, with such a radicalized society and a strong hate towards Indian culture, reunite with India amicably? Good question. Let's go to the map because that will help us understand the situation. Uh, so, yes, I have said this multiple times that Pakistan will eventually return to India. When I mean when I say eventually, I mean we're talking about a hundred-year horizon. It's not going to happen next week, next month, next year, next 10 years. We would like to first see Pakistan, the, the the Pakistani army to be removed as a factor from this region. And the ideal situation is that without any warfare, without any violence, uh Sindh should be allowed to become free, Balochistan should be allowed to become free. Uh, Pakistani Punjab can become free and uh, and, uh, the Pashtunistan region should maybe reunite with Afghanistan. That's the ideal situation. And then slowly we can think of in the long, long term, reunite Pakistan, these various parts of Pakistan with India. Because this is Indian territory. It has been Indian territory for for at least 10,000 years. It is an integral part of India's cultural and civilizational ethos and our territory. It is our heritage that has been stolen from us, this territorial heritage. The Indus River is an integral part of India. India is incomplete without Sindhudesh, without the Sindhu River, without all these regions which have been part of our territory historically. Peshawar, Purushpur, Quetta, and so on and so forth. So eventually it will reunite with India. It's not going to happen soon. It, it cannot happen soon. Like, like Gautam is saying, the Pakistani society is deeply, deeply radicalized and they have this this deep hatred for Indian culture. It doesn't make sense to reunite in, uh, these regions of Pakistan with India, even if Pakistan breaks up in the future. It doesn't make sense. It's going to cause huge problems for them and for us as well. We don't want that. The question is, do we really need, need Pakistan? We do re- need to reunite, reunify India with these uh, territories that were excised from india by the british we do need to do it in the long term over a 100 year horizon because these are our ancestral territories this is our heritage we cannot just let it go it is it is not right to let it go it is part of a, it is an integral part of india it will be reunified when the time is right so yes we do need we do need pakistan but not yet not yet and not now Right now, like Gautam says, we should focus on the Pok region, Pok, PoJK, and Gilgit-Baltistan. We need to focus on that because through that, uh, because when we reacquire PoJK and Gilgit- Gilgit-Baltistan, we will once again have a direct land route with Afghanistan, and through Afghanistan, we will be able to first of all help the people of Afghanistan, help them out, and also. Have a clear open route to Central Asia and to Europe through Afghanistan. Yes, so that's why in the immediate the immediate focus should be, let's say, in the next ten years, on reacquiring P.O.J.K. Pakistan Occupied Jammu and Kashmir, including Gilgit-Baltistan, and maybe some other parts of Pakistan, whatever, whatever we need, because the, this region, the Wakhan Corridor region, is very highly mountainous. It's not feasible. It's not very easy to build railway lines or roads through the through the through that region. So, maybe we can also acquire some other territory that is temporarily part of Pakistan, you know, closer to uh, mainland Afghanistan and so on. So, initially, we need to focus in the immediate future, next 10 years, hopefully, on reacquiring POJK. That needs to become part of, uh, to be reunified with India at the earliest. That way, we will be able to have a direct land route to Afghanistan and through Afghanistan to Central Asia and Europe. That will be great. That's what. India has been cut off from. That was the reason why uh, the British supported Pakistan in their uh, attempt to to capture Kashmir, to cut India off from Central Asia. India has always had these long trade routes and connections with Central Asia. And for the past 70 years, we have have been deprived of that. So the first thing is to recapture, reunify POJK. And in the long run, over over a hundred or so year horizon, we will reintegrate Pakistan with the motherland India, right? Daniel Nicholson says harboring superpower ambitions demands geopolitical assertion that sees no right or wrong. Correct. There's no right or wrong in geopolitics. India's neighbors are more nuisance than help for us. Do you think our ambitions could get a shot in the arm if we annexed neighboring nations that went against us once? We become a double digit trillion dollar economy. means a 10 trillion dollar economy. That would also effectively convey a message to less than friendly nations to not mess with India. Thank you. Look, you cannot learn how to sprint before you learn how to walk. So the first order of business is to reach the $10 trillion mark. GDP. Yeah. Once you do that, I do not see any need to annex neighboring nations. Let's look at the geography of the Indian subcontinent. Which are the nations that are part, that have historically been part of India? We have Pakistan, Afghanistan, yes, Nepal, um, Bangladesh, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, and yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. So the question is, uh, will our superpower ambitions get a shot in the arm if we annex neighboring nations? Does India have superpower ambitions? What is a superpower? How do you define a superpower? Here's how I define a superpower. In my definition, a superpower is a nation that has control more or less over the entire world and a nation that can intervene militarily anywhere in the world at 30 to 60 minutes notice. Does India want to be that sort of nation, a global hegemon? I don't think India wants to be a global hegemon. India should obviously be the major, uh, most powerful economy in the world, which has always been the historical position of India. Historically, India has always been the number one economy in the world. India needs to regain that status of the greatest, largest economy in the world. And if you are the largest economy in the world, you need the means to be able to protect and safeguard that. Which means India needs to have a massive military that is proportional to its economic might. And if India becomes the biggest economy in the world, then India should also be the biggest military in the world. But that doesn't mean... So if, if you do that, then India will have to secure supply chains and trade routes and all that, which means that India will have to expand its military footprint, especially navally and in other ways. India will have to have a much larger Air Force, much large, larger Navy to safeguard all those supply chains, trade routes in, in, in other nations, uh, nations that supply materials and all those things. So India's economic and military and naval and Air Force footprint will need to grow proportionate to its economy. But that doesn't require annexing neighboring nations. Let's talk about, let's say, Sri Lanka. Will India need to annex Sri Lanka in the future? I don't think so. I don't think so. Sri Lanka is anyway a friendly neighboring nation. We have more or less the same culture, same everything, just like Nepal. Why can't we have the kind of relationship we have with Nepal? We don't need to annex Nepal. We have an open border with Nepal. The people of Nepal have the right to come to India and live in India as long as they want and work in India as long as they want. They essentially have almost the same rights as Indian citizens and vice versa. The only thing is that the the Nepalese cannot vote in Indian elections. But the Nepalese, Nepalese people have the right to serve in the Indian armed forces because we see Nepal as the same people as us and the same nation, more or less. The same people, the same heritage as us. We could have a similar relationship with Sri Lanka. Why not? Without having to actually annex the nation. So we could create like, like they have the EU with open borders, we could create a subcontinental union similar to that and maybe expand it beyond to other friendly nations. Maybe in the future we could add Myanmar and Thailand and Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam to that, maybe even in Indonesia and so on. We can think of it in that manner. So without actually annexing other nations, we can integrate that those nations with our economy and have more or less open borders with friendly nations hopefully even westwards in the future hopefully in the next 100 years even with with what is now pakistan what is now Mm -hmm. afghanistan and maybe even with our our uh, real neighbors the the parsis the Iranians, we could have that once things are better in the world yeah so i would say india needs to raise its economic might india needs to maybe in the next 50 years become the world's largest economy which will need which will necessitate india to have the world's largest military and most powerful military as well. And we can use that military for good instead of using it for bullying bullying other nations and, and creating vassal states. We can use it for actual good for actual good in the world. That's what India has always been. India has always been a force of good rather than evil. India has never been a colonizer. India has always given more than it has taken. It has never taken anything from other nations. So that's what India should aspire to be, instead of becoming a, a new bully like the Americans, like, like the Anglo-Saxon Empire Saxon Empire, or like like what the Chinese wish to be, we could be a force for good but be the largest force in the world. So that's how I see our future foreign policy once we become a significant military and economic power. That's the kind of superpower India should aim to be, not a hegemon but a force for good. Chiching says, why was Delhi chosen as the capital of India? What were the reasons behind that? This is a great question. I'm, uh, yeah, nobody's asked this <laughs> thus far. Very good question. So yes, India's capital city is Delhi. Now, if you go back deep in India's history, like really deep, not very deep, but reasonably deep, go back to the time of the Mahabharat. The capital of the Pandavas was called uh, Astirapur. And there was another ma- major city called Indraprasth. Well, Indraprasth is the site of, ma- of present-day Delhi. So, Indraprasth, there is this, uh, this region, this part of Delhi, which is called Indrapat, which is the geographical site of the historical Indraprasth from the Mahabharat days. So, so it, it's a very old place, first of all, Delhi. And it's always been very significant. Uh, later on, during the Tomar Dynasty, Delhi. Delhi was the capital of the Tomar Rajputs, if I'm not mistaken. It was also the capital of Prithira Johan. Um, was it? It was always a major uh, city. It was, from time to time, uh, one of the major cities and one of the centers of power in India. The last Indian emperor who was crowned, in, when I say Indian, I mean a person who uh, followed Indian culture and traditions the last hindu emperor so to say was crowned emperor in delhi that was hemachandra vikramaditya his army was entirely pashtuns like 90% of his, of his soldiers were pashtuns but he was crowned the emperor of india which included afghanistan by the way at that time in delhi so delhi has from time to time been a major major city and from time to time been the capital of india yeah during the time of let's say Chandragupta Maurya, during the Mauryan era, when the Mauryan empire uh, had unified the sub- subcontinent, at that time, the capital of India was Patliputra, which is currently called Patna. Yeah, And even during the Gupta era, when the Gupta empire had again reunified India, the capital of India was Patliputra, Patna. During the Kushan era, we had two capitals. One was, I think, Mathura. One was uh, Purushpur, Peshawar. Yeah, during Kanishka's time. So, India has had various capitals from time to time. When the British annexed, I mean, when the British occupied India, their capital was Kolkata. In the far, not in the far east of India, but to the east. Yeah, At the time, of what is now, Bangladesh was also part of India. So, their capital was Kolkata. But then they expanded out of Bengal and they were able to capture more or less all of India. Yes. Uh, and then they they realized that their capital city is in the east of India. It should be a more centralized location, which is why I think it was in 1931 that they made Delhi the capital of India, and they they constructed a newer newer part of the city which they called New Delhi, and that's why they they made this more centrally located uh, city uh, the capital of the of British India at that time. It was centrally located because. What is now Pakistan was also part of India at the time. It was undivided India. It was not partitioned India. So Delhi was more or less to some extent in the center. Ideally, you want a city in Madhya Pradesh or something. yeah. But yeah, so so that's what they did. So that is the main reason why Delhi was ca- chosen as the capital of India and the the british had also partitioned bengal into east bengal and west bengal al- along religious lines and there were all these religious conflicts and riots and all things tensions in in bengal in calcutta that's why they wanted to leave the place and uh, leave uh, and, and come to delhi yeah so these are the reasons why they made delhi the capital of british india and after india's so called independence uh, the people who came the people to whom power was transferred were all Anglophiles and they believed in continuing whatever the British had done in India, so they changed nothing and Delhi remained the capital of India. Maybe in the future, we should think of of a, a new capital, maybe a brand new capital somewhere in real central India, or maybe going back to maybe let's say Patliputra, or maybe to Peshawar, Purushpur, or maybe Mathura. We've had many great cities in the past. Maybe Pune. Pune was a capital. Was a capital. Was a capital of India during the Maratha Empire time. You know, so there have been many various cities that in the past have served that have served as the capital of India. And Delhi is just one of them. There's nothing apart from that really special. Some people, you know, what they say they say that Delhi has a very bad history. It's a it is a cursed city. Some people say from the days of the Mahabharata itself, and obviously this this like it's a city that brings bad luck. Uh, when the, the 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 barbarian Timur invaded India, he he conducted a horrific massacre in in Delhi, in which at least a hundred thousand innocent men, women, and children were butchered in just one day, in the streets of Delhi. The city was awash in blood. So it's got a very bad, very dark history. This city, and some people say it's not appropriate for a city like that to be the capital of India. Maybe, maybe they're right. I don't know. I, I would say that maybe, and you know, so there are many reasons for which which uh, which would justify. India getting a new capital city, maybe somewhere in the actual center of India. Mm. But yeah, that's for the political class to decide. But I think that explains why Delhi was, capital, was chosen as the capital of India. It's a very good question. Pranab says, recently the Prime Minister of India said said about Indonesia that Indonesia is currently 90 nautical miles from India. I think they watch <laughs> the show. No, I, I don't know about that. Anyway, so what's What's my take on our neighborhood status of Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia? Why don't we consider them as neighbors? But we consider Maldives to be our neighbor. Let's take a look at the map. Yeah. So the Prime Minister said that Indonesia is about roughly 90 nautical miles from India. This is the island of Great Nicobar, right, which is India's southernmost uh, territory. And over here you have Sabang and you have Banda Aceh. Let's see the distance between uh, the Great Nicobar Island. And uh, the northern tip of Indonesia—that's one seventy-six kilometers. You divide that by two; it's about a yeah. It's it's uh, roughly note ninety or so nautical miles. Yeah. So Indonesia is is less than two hundred kilometers from India, and yet non- nobody in India thinks of Indonesia as a neighbor. There is something called a maritime neighbor. See, Sri Lanka obviously doesn't currently have a land connection with India. In the past, we did. We had the great Setu. Today, there is. Of uh, the Palk Strait, the Gulf of Manna, the Palk Strait, which uh, lies between mainland India and mainland Sri Lanka. So, Sri Lanka is currently not connected with India, and yet we think of Sri Lanka as our neighboring country. It's a maritime neighbor. Just the same way, Indonesia is also very much a maritime neighbor of India. And similarly, so is Thailand. Most of Thailand is over here, but some of it is over here. Let's say the uh, the, the the resort island of Phuket. How far is it from uh, Great Nicobar Island of India? Let's see. From here to here, let's measure the distance. It's about um, it's about four. It's about 500 kilometers. So it's about 500 kilometers from India across the Andaman Sea. So why is it not considered to be a neighboring country of India? I consider Thailand to be a neighboring country of India i but that's not how the way that's not the way we are taught geography when you go to school you learn geography they give you a set of nations that you have to memorize as india's neighbors the first nation that teach you is pakistan so that's why nobody and people are not taught how to think critical thinking yeah and that's why nobody in india thinks of thailand as a neighboring nation or indonesia as a neighboring nation even though they are so from my perspective india has a number of nations that are our neighbors with the from the perspective of land borders Tibet is one, Nepal is one, Bhutan is one, Bangladesh, Myanmar, and we have Afghanistan, Pakistan temporarily. Uh, Actually, Iran should be our neighbor once Pakistan is reintegrated. And then we have maritime neighbors, Maldives over here, obviously, which is really far from the coastline of India, and yet we consider it to be a neighbor. So Maldives is one. The Seychelles is another one, which is not really far away. Um, I would also consider Eastern Africa to be our neighbor, Somalia and Oman, and Yemen, and of course, these nations, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand. So from my perspective, these are all our neighboring nations. We have a number of maritime neighbors that we don't think about. So the reason why most Indians don't consider them neighbors is because it's not taught that way in our geography textbooks when we are in school. That's why we don't think about it. Yeah, But these are actually our neighbors. Mona Lisa says, "Could you tell us, please, why Ukraine and Belarus became two founding members of the United Nations in 1945, even though they were not independent nations at the time? In 1945, they were part of the USSR until 1991. Why? How did this happen? (laughs) What an interesting question! Good question, Mona Lisa. So here's what happened: The United Nations was formed in 1945. At that time, you had the USSR." which had, I don't know, how many? 26, 27 nations? Uh, sorry, republics. So the USSR stands for Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So all of these republics, Soviet Socialist Republics, like Ukraine, like Belarus, uh, like Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, like and so on and so forth, these were all various uh, republics that were that were constituent members of the USSR. In 1945, there was something called the British Commonwealth. India was part of that, India, no, India was still part of the British Empire at the time, it was still for illegally occupied by Britain. But you had nations like Australia, which was, also, which was also owned by the British Crown, like New Zealand, which was also owned by the British Crown, like Canada, which was also owned by the British Crown, it is still actually owned by the British Crown. So these were all members of the Commonwealth, the, the UK's Commonwealth. So the UK wanted these nations to be individual members, independent members of the united nations even though they were actually all ruled from london yeah so stalin said that this is wrong how can you do this you are ruling all these territories from london so why don't you have just one seat in the un for the for the entire british empire why are you you know so if you if you even though you are ruling it all from one place but you are giving more seats in the un to these territories, it means you get more votes for yourself. So by doing it that way, the Western powers, the English-speaking powers were getting more votes in the UN. So they could influence the decisions and proceedings in the UN because they had more seats, more votes. So Stalin said that if you are doing it this way, then every single republic of the USSR should get its own vote in the UN. When he said that, the Americans said that in that case, we want each American state, 50 states, to have a separate seat in the UN. So there was this squabbling that was going on. So, as a compromise, it was decided that the USSR will get two additional seats in the UN, which is the Ukraine SSR and the Belarus SSR, even though Ukraine and Belarus were part of the USSR. So, so USSR got three seats and three votes in the UN, uh, in the United Nations. But it got only one seat in the UN Security Council, the permanent five, the top five, which is understood to be understood which is understandable so that's how it happened that's how ukraine and belarus even though they were part of the ussr got became became two separate founding members of the un interesting very interesting story okay mazar says Why is it that some of the vassal states of the US like Japan, Germany etc are rich, while others like Pakistan are poor? Is it in the interest of the US to keep these countries rich or poor or is it because of, of their leadership? Okay, why is it so? Why are some nations rich? Why are some nations poor? So Japan was destroyed at the end of the Second World War. By 1945, Japan had been nuked twice. It was totally destroyed, totally flattened, bombed to the ground. Then the Americans occupied Japan and under American occupation, the Japanese were allowed to rise again. And because of the industriousness and all that of the Japanese people, the hard work and all that, they were able to make Japan a major economy once again. It had become the second largest economy in the world in the 1980s and it could have actually surpassed the, uh, the United States. And then some things were done and Japan's economy was destroyed. It's still a major nation, a very rich and prosperous nation so japan was under us occupation south korea also was uh, underwent the same process it was under us occupation it was also allowed to rise and become prosperous germany etc were all rebuilt after the destruction of the second world war under us stewardship germany like japan and south korea is also under us permanent occupation okay And the Americans allowed Germany to become a major industrial power again. It became the powerhouse of Europe and it was all beneficial to the Americans because the Americans actually occupied Western Europe and controlled Western Europe. And obviously you have the NATO nations and all that. So Europe had a high degree of prosperity because they had looted and pillaged and plundered the entire world for 500 years before the Second World War. Africa and India, obviously. The the UK obviously had a plundered India for centuries. So the the European nations produce very little compared to, to nations in Africa and Asia. And yet they became so prosperous. It's because they stole all the wealth out of the rest of the world. That's why they were prosperous. And that those riches still, most of those riches and all the wealth still persisted after the Second World War. That's why these nations... The European nations were rich. Japan rebuilt itself. South Korea rebuilt itself after the after the Korean War. Europe was already rich. So that's why these Vassal states in Europe were already rich. And that's how Japan and South Korea were allowed to become rich. Pakistan is a Vassal state, but the US has never occupied Pakistan. They have put a puppet power. The, the, they have propped up the the dictatorial regime of the pakistani army and the isi the us has never of uh, never actually physically occupied pakistan so pakistan is a client state it's a vassal state it's like it's like many african dictatorships that are also us client states or vassal states but the us doesn't actually occupy those nations yeah so that's why some client states or vassal states are rich and some are poor. It's not like the US de- decides that these nations will be allowed to become rich and these will be kept poor. It's not like that. They just use whatever is there available to them to their benefit. And that's how it is done. And I had so many other questions that I had to take. But I think we <laughs> we, are, we are reaching the end of today's session. Let me see if I can take one or two more uh, karan alawat says what was the current event and dungar Johan says how dangerous are solar flares how severely can they uh, impact life on earth okay uh, let's talk about uh, solar flares first so solar flare so th- the sun is a star it's a ball of fluid it's a ball of gas but that gas is very dense uh, the density of the hydrogen gas on the sun is is it's 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 thicker than water it's denser than water yeah and uh, the sun is a highly magnetized star there are these massive enormously powerful magnetic fields that lie below the surface of the sun and the sun has this this uh, has an atmosphere the corona and all that and these magnetic fields they create these loops you know the magnetic lines of force you can see these loops on the in the atmosphere of the sun and these look, loops are always changing they're always interacting with with each other and sometimes they break and if this happens in the atmosphere of the sun it it uh, the sun is always ejecting the solar wind which causes auroras on earth but when one of these solar uh, one of these magnetic lines of force breaks off it it gives rise to what's called a coronal mass ejection which is a huge out, outburst of plasma from the sun's surface and if it comes in the direction of the of the earth then it can uh, cause something like the Carrington event, which is uh, an event that happened, I think, in 1859. So it was this huge coronal mass e- ejection that hit the Earth. It impacted the Earth's magnetic field. So when something like this hits the Earth, there is no real effect of on life on Earth. It doesn't affect us because most of it is absorbed by the magnetic field of the Earth and the atmosphere. None of these... Uh, None of this plasma is able to actually reach this surface of the Earth, but you see intense uh, magnetic activity in the form of these auroras. So in the, when the Carrington event happened, it was the most powerful, and this thing is called a geomagnetic storm. So it was the most powerful geomagnetic storm ever recorded. Yeah, You had auroras along the equator, if I'm not mistaken. Typically, you see auroras along the poles, the North Pole and the South Pole. Of the earth. But this was so intense you see, the, that auroras were witnessed near the equator of the earth. And various uh, telegraph uh, systems, they started sparking in the fires and all that because of induced currents that are induced by magnetism and all that. So these solar flares and geomagnetic storms and events like the Carrington event, they don't They will not cause any actual loss of life or or any damage to anyone's health. But they can destroy electrical grids. Totally destroy electrical grids. So they could knock off electrical grids across the world if something like this happens again. And your laptops and whatever else you use will all get fried, destroyed. And to replace... Those burnt out, destroyed electrical electrical grids could take months, perhaps years. In cold places, people could die from exposure to cold because there is no electricity available for heating and so on. And it could destroy satellites around the Earth. It could destroy hundreds of satellites. We would be left without any communications. That thing will happen one of these days. It's the statistical certainty. So, yeah. So solar flares are dangerous from that perspective, they cannot kill anybody or affect life on earth or make anybody sick, but they can destroy our electrical Mm -hmm. infrastructure, they could destroy our communications infrastructure, they could destroy satellites and they could destroy all kinds of equipment on the earth, which could be a disaster, which would destroy economies worldwide and it could actually kill people from exposure to cold in cold places. So that's why solar flares and geomagnetic storms Mm -hmm. and coronal mass ejections are potentially very dangerous. All right, let me take a couple of questions from the live chat. I had many questions that I had in queue, but let's take some questions from the live chat right now. Yes. And manufacturing and logistics and much more. Absolutely right. Yes. Okay, Bhavesh says, Cocoa Islands issue. China is constructing an airstrip on one of the islands. So the Cocoa Islands are two islands in the very north part of the uh, Andamans. Let's take a look at it. I'm sure you all know where the Andaman Islands are. So to the north of the Andaman Islands, you have these two Coco Islands, which belong to India, but the great, magnificent Prime Minister of India, Sri Sri Jawaharlal Nehruji, gifted them to Burma, for whatever reason, for reasons known best to him. So the the thing is, is China constructing an island, uh, sorry, an airstrip on one of these islands? Let us see satellite. Do we have satellite? Satellite, yes. Let's see the satellite image. Let's close that. So there are two Cocoa Islands. The south one has just forests. It's very small. It's about a kilometer or so in, in length. The northern island has an airstrip. It's been around for a long time, this airstrip. And it's got all kinds of infrastructure also. It's, it's very well organized, as you can see. There are residential buildings. There are buildings that look like offices. There is this building, which could be a hangar, perhaps, possibly... We don't know. There are other buildings here. There's a whole complex in the north. Yeah. So there is a lot of infrastructure on this island. Very well developed, very well organized and a significant airstrip. Let's see how long it is. Measure distance from top from bottom to the top. It's 2.4 kilometers. Let's say two kilometers. That is a very significant airstrip. You can land heavy military planes on this island so this infrastructure is has been constructed by the by the Chinese the Burmese many years ago decades ago perhaps handed over the, this island to the Chinese and the Chinese have developed all this infrastructure on this island some of it is military in nature some of it this this essentially is a signals intelligence gathering station they use this 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 place uh. Where is it? Go back to default. Yeah. So they use this island to eavesdrop on Indian naval and military activity in the Andamans and in the larger Indian Ocean region, in the Bay of Bengal region. Yeah, in the Kalinga Mahasagar region. So that's that's what's happening. So the Chinese are not building an airstrip on the island. They have already done it long ago. And they use this, this facility, this infrastructure for spying on India. That's what. Is going on, and that is all thanks to the magnificence and generosity of the great Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji, the most magnificent Prime Minister of India. All right, let's see some other questions. <coughs> let's see uh, some other questions. Uh, how would Chanakya have countered terrorism? Well, Chanakya lived in a different time, and he was essentially the most trusted advisor of the Emperor of India. Chandragupta Maurya ruled over large parts of India. His rule was unquestioned. So, Chanakya would have dealt with terrorism with a very heavy hand, with an iron fist. He would have smashed terrorism. Those, if he was in India today, in the 21st century, his approach would be different. It, he, India is not a very major, majorly powerful nation today. India is an, an emerging great power. It's not a superpower. And there are lots of issues in India, internally and externally. So, today... Chanakya would have advised a more nuanced approach. Hide and bide. Hide your capabilities, bide your time, and do whatever you can stealthily. Yeah? All right. Yes, sir. Somebody remembered you. <laughs> um, okay. Atharva says, why do you call nations like France and Germany vassals when America has no administration power over these nations? Yes. America does not administer the nation. These nations have elections. They have their own president. They have their own local government, their own city councils and all that. Everything is them. They have their own laws, their own legislature. So why do I call them vassals? Because their foreign policy is dictated by the US. They are members of NATO. NATO is owned by the US. They are members of the EU. The EU is the PR front of, of NATO. Mm-hmm. EU and NATO are owned by the US. They are controlled by the US. Everything that happens there is controlled by the US. The foreign policy and economic policy of these nations is dictated by the US. France, I I would say, has a quasi-independent foreign policy in the sense that they have their own independent military. They have their own nuclear warheads. They have their own submarines that are not controlled by the Americans. Yeah, And they have nuclear warheads of their own. They have significant interest in the Indian Ocean region, but the core foreign policy cannot deviate from US national interests. Same goes for Germany. In the case of Germany, do you you even hear me? I said it a few minutes ago. Germany is under permanent US military occupation. It has been so since 1945. There is permanent US military presence in Germany, military bases that are controlled by the U.S. that have U.S. military personnel on German territory since 1945. The German constitution was written by Americans. Yeah, technically it was written by Germans, but not a single word is in the constitution that was not approved by the Americans. And when Germany was reunified, it is the U.S. imposed constitution that was extended to Eastern Germany these are the reasons why i say that nations like france and germany and every other nation that's part of the eu and every other nation that's part that's part of the of the nato all these nations are vassal states of the us yes they make it look very nice to you there are elections they have their own presidents they have their own laws they have their own legislature and yet if you look deep within if you peel back some layers you will understand what's really happening you have to dig a little deeper do not look at things superficially, then you will understand the world. Alright, so that's the reason why I always say that France and Germany are vassals of the US. Alright, I will take one more question. Um, let's see. Okay, let's take a question by Shaheen. To what extent to what extent, can a stellar flyby destabilize the solar system? Is it conceivable that the Toba super explosion happened as a result of the tidal forces from the Schultz star? A stellar flyby means another star. You know, the sun is, is a star, one of the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And... The Sun is not sitting in one place, it's moving around the center of the galaxy. At the center of the galaxy, we have this unseen object. It's a supermassive black hole, it's sitting at the center of the galaxy, it's holding the entire galaxy together to a large extent. Yeah? It, affects the, it affects the dynamics of the galaxy and the movements of the stars. So all the stars are doing this merry-go-round. around the unseen, central, supermassive black hole of our galaxy. And from time to time, stars come in close contact. So stars typically never collide. But star systems can come in contact with each other, close to each other, pass, pass near each other. That's called a stellar flyby, which means another star with its star system, with its planets and all that, comes close, passes close by to the Sun. And about, uh, I don't know, 80,000 or so years ago, there was a star called Scholz's star that that came very close to the Sun. It is a very small star, but it came very close to the the Sun. So the question is, how much can, to what extent can such a stellar flyby destabilize the solar system? It's going to have an effect. If a massive object, a massive star passes by the Sun, it's going to, its gravitational force, gravitational pull is going to reconfigure the solar system if it comes too close. Otherwise, it's going to reorient some of the orbits of the planet's And asteroids and comets and all that, it can do that. So it's all about gravitation. It's all about gravity. Its gravitational pull will kind of perhaps change the trajectory of the sun itself and it could possibly end up changing certain orbital configurations of the planets in the solar system. Yeah. So there have been computer computer simulations done about what effect the the, the, uh, flyby of the Scholz star would have had on on the sun and the solar system and maybe on the earth and the various uh, possibilities exist we're not quite sure of how it went um is it conceivable that the, the the toba super explosion toba super volcano explosion occurred as a result of tidal forces i think it's unlikely a tidal forces will happen when you have an, a gravitating object that's very close to the to the earth to the extent that it deforms the surface and the shape of the earth the moon does that but there is no other object that comes so close. Even the Sun, even the Sun doesn't deform the Earth's crust and surface to a significant extent. The Sun does have some effect on the tides on Earth, but not as much as the Moon. So you need to be really close because gravity is a very weak force. So I don't think the Toba supervolcano explosion happened as a consequence of the Scholz's star, but uh, yeah, interesting question. Alright, all right. I think uh, I know lots of other questions. I can do it until tomorrow, but I think we will call it a day over here. It's been two hours, eight minutes. So uh, let me end the session over here. Thank you very much, everybody. Uh, Yeah, I know there's a football match going on, the World Cup in Qatar. Wonderful. Watch it. Um, Yeah, so that brings us to the end of today's session, to the end of episode 143. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for all your questions. Thank you very much for your viewership. I really appreciate it. And we will continue this next week. Until then, take care. Stay healthy, take care, and I'll see you soon. Bye.